I believe very strongly in the role of the outsider, the foreign correspondent, and by that I mean any foreigner reporting from any country. And while, yes, at the moment, we still see the CNNs, the BBC, the Al Jazeera's dominating the, the news channels, I, I don't think that's a fixed status quo. And I think, you know, the idea that only British people or Nigerian people should tell British or Nigerian stories is is short-sighted and and wrong and I and I would argue that to the to the death Over the last 3 decades journalist Andrew Harding has reported on some of the most pivotal moments in history He was there at the end of Soviet Russia spoke with Al-Shabaab militants in Somalia covered wars in too many countries to even list here his reporting has borne witness to stories that have changed the course of history. So why would Andrew turn his focus in his latest book to a small town outside the city of Johannesburg in South Africa called Perez, to a trial where white farmers stood accused of being involved in the murder of two black farm workers, who in their death were so inconsequential to parts of the legal system that the lawyers on both sides of the case struggle to get their names right. Welcome to Storyteller. I'm your host, Lisa Golden. In this episode, I speak to the BBC's Africa correspondent, Andrew Harding, about his new book, These Are Not Gentle People, a true crime telling of one murder trial, the array of complicated characters surrounding it, and an unflinching look at the traumas still beating in the heart of modern South African life. There's so much packed into this conversation. We start with the discussion of the book, which is just such a tragic and enraging story. You don't have to be South African to be gripped by Andrew's telling of this case. We then move on to the nuts and bolts of narrative nonfiction, the differences in reporting daily news versus long-form storytelling, the modern role of foreign correspondents, and changes in the media across the world. And before we begin, I do just have to apologize. I managed to get to episode 10, (laughs) double digits, of this podcast without any significant technical difficulties. And then, of course, on this very important interview, my microphone failed. I was very lucky that I had a backup running on my laptop. So um, you do hear me. I sound very scratchy, not like this. But thankfully, I don't talk too much in this interview. And I let Andrew do all of the talking, and his audio is fine. Um, But I do apologize for the quality of of my side of the conversation. Now on to my interview with Andrew. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on Storyteller today. I thought maybe we could just start, if you could just give us a very quick bio, and then we can move on to talking about your brilliant new book. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Um, So I am a journalist. I guess that's the main thing. I've been a foreign correspondent for 30 years now, somehow or other. I set off in 1991 from Britain as, a, I think, a 24-year-old with a rucksack and plans to become a freelancer in Moscow, which was just kind of centre of the big news story with the Soviet Union collapsing and uh, Yeltsin taking power. 
And um, I stayed in the end, bizarrely, for a decade in Russia, including a couple of years in living in Tbilisi in Georgia. Uh, I'd mm. become a, a BBC correspondent by, you know, for the last four years um, in Moscow. And then I moved to Nairobi um, as a BBC correspondent covering East Africa. Then I moved to Asia as the Asia correspondent, um, covering lots of floods and mudslides and tsunamis and dramas and Burma and so on. And then um, almost 12 years ago now, I moved to back to Africa as the Africa correspondent based in Johannesburg. And I've been running around the continent ever since. Um, I wrote one book back in 2016, took a bit of a break to do that. And I've just finished, as you say, another one here. Yeah, I'm really fascinated. Like you said, you've covered these huge world-changing stories. And so how did you end up, you know, covering this uh, story in Paris? This tiny, strange little yeah. mystery in a, in a sort of small town in, in a rather empty corner of South Africa. Yes, um, I guess, I guess I, I don't really see this book as a continuation of my work as a journalist. I, I saw this as something else. I saw it as a chance mm. to take a deep dive into something very small, a microcosm, uh, and an experiment, really. I, I When I started investigating the story back in 2016, I had no idea where it would go, when it would come to trial, um, what really were the, were the issues behind it. I just knew that I wanted to attach myself to a true crime story and follow it. And I had a feeling, not only that this had happened at the right time, but that this was a story that 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 gripped me, that, that seemed mm. to have promise um, on all sorts of levels. Political, yes, all the issues of land and race and all the struggles of South Africa today, but really at the heart, just some fascinating people and and this extraordinarily brutal attack that, that kind of goes against the grain of, of so many farm attacks here in South Africa. And I just was hooked and decided to, to experiment and to attach myself to it and see where it went. Yeah, and it is it is such an incredible um, story. And I, I it almost sounds a bit perverse to say that I enjoy reading it because it, it is obviously a story of incredible violence and um but coming from Joburg, it was it was really um, I don't know you know I think if, if we're so exposed to true crime and it's so often American or British, having this sort of storytelling eye over um, you know issues that I I know I'd say probably more as a citizen than as a journalist, um, it was a really fascinating read and and I I do appreciate that it wasn't like oversimplified. You know, like you said, there's the very obvious issues that we can get into in South Africa. And um, I mean, to get into the book, maybe if you can just introduce us to the story, but um, just the host of characters that you get to know through the book is incredible. So do you mind just doing an outline of sort of how you come into the story and, and what the story was? Yeah, with pleasure. So it starts in January 2016. It's late afternoon and an elderly white farmer presses his alarm button in his house with a bloody hand and in doing so sets off this extraordinary sequence of events. The old man is called Ludi van der Westhuizen and all his neighbours, most of them relatives, other members of this big van der Westhuizen clan, react very 
nervously and quickly to this alarm call because everybody here knows about the stories of farm attacks. They know about some neighbours who a few years earlier had been tortured and horrifically killed and buried in a deep freeze. Some other white farmers or elderly white couple who lived on one of the farms anyway. And so all these white farmers have this image in their minds of what might have happened to their old relative as they all converge on his farm and then set out to hunt for two, possibly three, suspected robbers, three black men um, who fled, they believe, across the fields. And before long, the farmers, maybe 40 of them all in all, track down, capture, arrest these two black men. One of them is called Samuel Chicka, the other Simon Jubeba. Um, they're farm workers. They're known to most of the farmers or to some of them. They've been working on these farms for, for many years. They capture them, they corner them, and then this is where everything goes wrong. Instead of simply handing over these men to the police to investigate whether or not they were indeed robbers, they start to assault them. They take it in turns. They're calling them the K-word, which South Africans know what it means, but to many people around the world have no clue that the K-word is the South African equivalent of the N-word. It's a word rich with history, with venom, with racism of the most brutal kind. It drags up all the old memories of racial apartheid. And they're using this word, they're taking turns assaulting these men until they're unconscious, at which point they're taken away in the back of a police truck, taken into Paris. And the following morning, which Paris being the local town, the following morning, Simon and Samuel are pronounced dead. Of course, at that point, everything changes again, because suddenly the farmers are potentially, and, and very soon, uh, implicated in a double murder. And the police, the hawks, the uh, uh, special investigating unit comes rushing into town to investigate this apparently racial murder. Next up, we discuss the updates to the case since he finished writing the book. And I just wanted to clarify that Andrew and I spoke in August. So when I say yesterday in my first question that you'll hear now, that was the 24th of August, 2020. I checked in with Andrew just before I released this episode and there's been no development in the case since we spoke and the sentencing has been postponed to December. I don't want to give, you know, we don't have to go through the whole book because I, I really just think everyone should read it. But um, I was trying to, I, I quite purposefully tried to not read too much before I finished the book. But then I, I saw that um, that their sentencing was supposed to be yesterday. Did that go forward? Uh, or I wasn't sure if it had maybe been thrown off with everything with COVID. Well, not with COVID. In fact, COVID was, was strangely actually helped to push the verdict forward because the judge who ended the trial more than a year ago, then wasted a year um, without delivering her verdict. She was finally, under great pressure, forced to deliver a summary judgment a few months ago, mid-pandemic. She still mm. hasn't actually produced or finished writing her full judgment, which is outrageous, okay. frankly. Yeah. Um, so to yesterday, the sentencing 
hearings began. This is the, the defence okay. saying, here's why we don't think our, our defendants should be sort of given serious, heavy prison sentences. Um, but the prosecution then today said, well, hang on, you haven't finished giving us the judgment, judge, so we're not going to play ball here. We're not going to argue why these men should be given heavy prison sentences when you haven't still bothered to give us your full judgment, your very, frankly, controversial judgment, which is almost certain to be appealed here. So yeah. the whole thing, once again, has been delayed. This four and a half year process is now going to go on at least till December when the court will re-adjourn, um, will re, sorry, reconvene for sentencing, perhaps. Mm. But I, I'm not holding my breath, frankly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think there's two things that I, I'd like to dig into there, which I think one will be the, the, the process of sort of narrative nonfiction storytelling. But if you don't mind the sort of slightly nerdier side of the storytelling. Mm. No, I love the nerdier side. Um, I mean, I'd love to know just, you know, did you develop the characters first and then do you weave them through or did you just take a chronological look? Because I thought what was really powerful in it is, A, I mean, there's no whisper of you in it the whole way through. You know, the idea that you sort of reflected on what the different characters would have had, had been thinking. On the nitty gritty side, um, how do you lay all of that out? I'd be really curious to know and then pull it together to make it a book. <laughs> mm. Well, I was blessed with some remarkable characters, if you like, human beings in this mm. story who were, again, I was very lucky for, that they were very frank and open with me. It took a while. I, I, I sort of arrived at court, this Englishman in an Afrikaans town, um, Afrikaners being pretty wary of Englishmen <laughs> at the mm. best of times. But it basically, I, I was I had the luxury of time. So I, I hung around the court. I was there every day. And as the months and years went by, I spoke to everybody involved and made it clear, firstly, that I wasn't going to betray their confidences. I wasn't going to run and start writing articles for the newspapers. I wasn't doing news. I was simply here for the book. And if they took me into their confidence, I promised them that nothing they said would be used until the murder trial was over. And over time, people opened up. Not everyone. The accused, yeah. all six accused, or five of the six accused, declined to talk to me on their lawyer's recommendation until after the trial was over. But frankly, by then I'd heard all I needed from their wives, their daughters, their relatives, their farm workers, all sorts of other people to, to fill in the blanks. And I sat down with people with a small, initially with a small dictaphone, and just spent time with them and listened. And as an outsider, I guess, some people felt that I was a useful sounding board, somebody outside this sort of world of trauma and betrayal and drama, somebody who was just sit and listen to them. And so over, over the years, and it really did take years, and, and frankly, if it hadn't taken all this time for the trial to drag on, I don't think I would have had nearly as, as strong a book, because it, it was not until the last year that some people really opened up to me. And I transcribed everything from these recordings, um, perhaps a million words in all, and I organized it and I reread it. And the, the process of transcribing I found 
very useful in kind of allowing me to kind of filter through what, what I wanted. And then I decided pretty early on, as you say, that I didn't want to be in the book. This isn't a journalist book. This isn't a current affairs book. I was sort of, my ambition was to try and follow in the, the rather larger footsteps of Truman Capote and In Cold Blood, that style of, of a novel that you're not sure as you're reading it whether it's the truth or not. Um, and, and the way I did it was, and this was in consultation with my wonderful editor, Alison Lowry, um, and Pam McMillan, the publishers here in South Africa, who basically said, you know, we decided let's not use quotation marks for any speech. So everything that's everything that people say in my book is something that somebody said to me. It's either firsthand or it's reported speech. But by not putting it all in inverted commas, I think we took away some of the kind of documentary style, journalistic style of writing and lent it a more kind of novelistic vibe or feel to it, if you like. And mm. so I, I, everything I put in people's mouths was things they'd said, but sometimes I didn't put it in their mouth. I put it in their head. So I talk about what people are thinking at certain key moments not just the, mer the the killings, not just the beatings, not just those moments, but but the betrayals, the family dramas, the the attempted suicide, the breakdown of marriages, and because people trusted me with their inner thoughts uh, and their inner stories, I, I was able to build up not just from their perspective, but but at key moments from you know almost a conversation between key people. Um, to recreate scenes in, in what I hope is a kind of dramatic way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think just the complexity, and like you said, I, I think I can appreciate more the time, the scale that you, you bring to the story um, just really adds. And, and I think maybe the conflict in the in the book between these sort of two factions of the Van der Beesen family also sort of, I think, um, draw it away from an oversimplified argument about it being specifically about race or specifically about land. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. And in fact, when I, when I first went to Paris to look at this story, I, I was quite wary. I, I was really not, I'm not drawn to the land issue in South Africa in a kind of simplistic way. I'm interested, obviously, the land debate here is, is absolutely fundamental. I wasn't interested so much in in this very extreme version of the land debate in South Africa between groups like the EFF and Black First, Land First on one side and the kind of genocidal white Trump rhetoric on the far right, white side of the debate. I'm much more interested in the more complex battles and struggles that people are having you know, in the real world, if you like, in everyday life. Um, and, and I found quite quickly that the politics um, drifted away. The, the political parties who were trying to exploit the case gave up interest pretty soon. The media drifted away. And I was left with a, a sort of traumatised community, a divided community, but a community that just simply had to get on with life. Um, and I found that much more interesting, much more kind of gritty and honest than the, than the politicised version that we see in the headlines so often here. 
in this tragic story, there's a breakdown of every system and institution that should have or could have found justice for Samuel Jiga and Simon Jubeba. It's the kind of frustrating, anger-inducing lack of fairness and accountability that is felt by citizens in so many countries across the world. The repetition of violence is so monotonous that you become numb to it. Cases, names, deaths, they go by in a blur. But this form of narrative non-fiction breathes energy and intrigue into these everyday stories. The failed procedures, seemingly endless court dates, these thousands of small injustices. For me, nothing highlights this loss of humanity and dignity than the passage in the book that describes how the names and the identities of the two murdered black farm workers were often confused by the legal team on both sides of the trial. You know, every step it felt, you know, someone had dropped the ball and there was, you know, that kind of, I don't know, it's corruption, it's not quite the correct term, but do you know what I mean? That breakdown at every little thing where you should be, the system should be holding it together to bring people justice. Exactly. I mean, pe- people have asked me about this book, you know, you, you're, you're a neutral voice in this. You're, you're, you're outside the, the story. And it's, of course, not true. I, I am... I may not be saying me and I and I think and, you know, involving myself, but I've shaped the, the narrative. Uh, and, and a lot of that was, I think, influenced by my sort of growing sense of, of anger and shock at the way uh, Simon and Samuel were treated by every single institution in this country that should have protected them in life, but particularly, I guess, their their names, their identities in death. They were let down by the doctor who misdiagnosed Samuel in Paris. They were let down by the forensic pathologist who did such a shoddy job that his work was torn apart by the defence in court. They were let down by the police who confused their identities in their own dockets. They were let down by the prosecution who couldn't even remember their names even after years of trial. Uh, and who put, again, their wrong names, the names the wrong way round, on their own heads of argument. They were let down by the judge, in my view, who took years to to work out which was which, and even then got that wrong. They were let down by the defence, if you like, but actually it wasn't the defence's job to to identify them. In fact, the confusion that reigned in court over their identities was very useful for the defence. So I don't blame them for that. But... Yes, I mean, I, I got increasingly angry as I saw the way the system had, yeah, basically sidelined them and their identities and their and their story, and of course, uh, and then humiliated their own families as they were dragged into court to supposedly identify two men whose identities were never in doubt if anyone had paid, you know, even the slightest bit yeah. of attention. And of course, that is racist. It, it, it's about race. It's about the discounting and the and that that cliche of two black men who well who can tell them apart frankly I mean that was the the subtext that I picked up on and you know was there day in day out in court and it was just shocking and it was shocking the way it was picked up not just by the the white people in court but by their black colleagues too um I I was breath breathtaking by 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 the way they they were discounted and that that drove me that anger sustained me, I think, to some extent in wanting to, to tell their story and to get closer 
to their families, particularly Ruth, the mother of of Samuel, yeah. who who was such a courageous, bold kind of powerful figure. Yeah, I thought that was such a. I mean, I I think I even had to just sort of step away from from reading it for a moment when they had to bring Ruth back in, because um, I mean that's just that level that level of negligence. Um, but yeah, um, so to um, I sort of wrap up on the book and but move a little bit more before we move over, I'd love to ask you some more questions about um, being a foreign correspondent. But um, as a start, you know, there's um, narrative nonfiction. Um, I'm personally a massive fan. But how how did you how do you find it compared to your normal reporting? Does it sort of scratch a different edge from what you would say be doing in your normal day to day work? Oh, yes. I mean, I think there's a reason why some, well, there are many reasons, but but there is a reason why journalists often want to hanker after writing books, writing maybe this kind of book. And that's because journalism is, is brief, it's quick, it's daily, it's one story, move on. Sometimes it's a, a conflict and then you know, or a, or a longer story or a drama that you you get invested in, but very often, particularly for foreign correspondents who have to be jacks of all trade. I mean, I cover all of Africa, um, yeah. or at least I oh, attempt well. to. I mean, it's ludicrous. Yeah. Of course, I can't. Um, you cherry pick. You go for the the big story of the moment, the story that might get you know break through on the news in the United Kingdom or wherever else. So you you are helicoptered in to wars and conflicts and dramas and all sorts of things and then you leave and you try and do your best in that moment but the luxury of wallowing in a story at at this granular level for months or years and being able to get into people's heads and get into the detail I mean the last time I encountered it was with the Pistorius case to some extent even though I I never felt moved to write a book about that case um, I I was fascinated by the the legal processes, by the by the sense that you know these lawyers they know their craft and they know their trade, but actually, you know, we all could see what was going on, and uh, we all had very strong opinions, and you know, I found that absolutely mesmerizing, and that was part of the reason I wanted to kind of follow my own case to write a book about something that I thought could you know tell a different story about. South Africa. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was it's a great luxury and a great privilege to be able to spend this much of time uh, on one case. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, you've spoken um, quite uh, clearly there to, to this power of being an, an outsider and what you can see when you when you come into a space like that. And I'd, I'd just be curious, like what you mentioned there of like the you know, I guess the concept of a current correspondent, I know when I was coming up in like, even just maybe at journalism school, you know, that was like the ultimate thing you could be. It was just like the, you know, it was the big goal. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you, if you had any thoughts on like, if that has changed over recent years, because I think obviously there are a lot more conversations happening um, about uh, race and language and, and um, ownership and, and who can say what, where. But yeah, have you have you noticed a change in that over the last couple of years? And I, because sorry, the reason I'm hesitating is like it's also happened at the same time where journalism, for me at least, has changed so dramatically that there's there's such a different 
Um, mm-hmm. Like if I think about some of the first stories that I went on, there was only like the big names were there. Whereas now, um, not to be dismissive, but almost anyone can kind of walk into a a, a war zone essentially um, as a freelancer or as a stringer. Um, and that's quite a different thing than, you know, someone coming in with 20, 30 years of experience into a, a place that they are. Yeah, outside yeah. Of. I mean, it's, it is a crazy time in, in publishing, in, in journalism. And I mean, I think there are two questions there, as you, you said. So the one is structural. It's about, and, it, and you saw this in Paris. I mean, this trial, it should have been covered from the start to the finish. It's a huge, important trial. And yet it wasn't. The, the mm. media local media, local radio is being eroded in South Africa as everywhere else by the, the you know, the, by the destructive power of, of Google, you know, and it's mm-hmm. free, free news. Um, but it's not, it's not investing in, in the, the radio stations and the, and the local journalists who, who should be telling these stories. And so, you know, that's a frustration. Um, you know, the bigger version of that story is, yes, you know, as you say, the, the entry level in some way, the entry point for foreign correspondence is, is much easier and cheaper these days because you just need a phone. Whereas yeah. when I started off in Moscow 30 years ago, you know, it was a real struggle because equipment was expensive. Phones were very expensive. The internet had barely got started. And so, you know, your entry-level costs were huge. Um, on the other hand, it meant that if you did get a string, if you did get a freelance job, people paid properly. And if you were in the right mm. country with a, you know, with a, a slightly lower cost of living, like Russia in those days, you could live fine. You could sustain yourself with one or two pieces of journalism a week. Um, you could live and you could do proper research and proper reporting. Now everybody can file, everyone has all the information in theory, although I still think there's no excuse for sitting behind your your laptop and thinking you're working. I still believe in, you know, old-fashioned journalism, going out there and, mm-hmm. and finding out what's not being reported. Um, but you can get in very easily and get published somewhere, but you're not going to get paid. You're not going to get paid a proper yeah. amount. And so we're in this in-between world where actually... When there are big stories and when, you know, there's this nonsense of fake news, people still do, by and large, revert mercifully to the big trusted brands who do proper journalism and have reputations that are at stake uh, if they're caught lying. Um, And then there's the other issue you mentioned there, which is about ownership of stories. And I, and who gets to tell those stories? And, and, you know, and that's particularly uh, an issue in Africa, in, in South Africa with its history. But it's also an issue that I try, within reason, to push back on quite hard because I, and I guess I'm, you know, I'm self-serving here, but I believe very strongly in the role of the outsider, the foreign correspondent. Um, and by that, I mean any foreigner reporting from any country. And while, yes, at the moment, we still see the CNNs, the BBC, the Al Jazeera's, you know, dominating the the, the news channels, I I don't think that's a fixed status quo. And And I think that African media, you know, will surely 
more and more be reporting back to their countries on what's going on around the world. And I think, you know, the idea that only British people or Nigerian people should tell British or Nigerian stories is is short-sighted and and wrong. And I and I would argue that to the to the death. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe we need to be sensitive, and I do believe, as with the BBC, you know, we have a huge Africa service, Africans telling African stories to Africa and beyond, and that's correct, and it's an important part of the mix. But it's also important that people in Britain who, for instance, pay for the BBC with their licence fees are told stories from Africa by somebody like me who who sees it through an outsider's British perspective to some degree and can tell stories in different ways. That's not to say I should hog all the, all the coverage, um, but I should be people like me should be in the mix as they should be around the world. And I think that that kind of choice, that range of views and opinions is is very important and shouldn't be thrown away. Mm, mm. Well, that's good. So um, the next question on my list was, do you still feel passionate about journalism? So I think that would be a, a resounding yes. I do. I mean, I think, you know, from... Well, in my, you know, uh, there's nothing more. I, I've, I've ended up covering a lot of wars in my career, you know, dozens, or certainly a couple of dozen. Um, and, you know, th- that's a very galvanizing experience for a journalist. You know, there's nothing more important than, than a war. Um, there's a reason why wars dominate news so often, because, because they are the ultimate experience of societal failure and they are the um, ultimate sort of call cry for help and they demand attention um and as a journalist you know that that gives you an extraordinary sense of of motivation particularly when you're working for an organization that you believe in and if you believe people need a voice and that the truth should be fought for and and people's you know and 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 the, and the powerful held to account and i think in this strange world we have now with climate change with trump with populism on the rise with lies and fake news on the rise these are also issues that that i find terribly driving as as motivation for for doing what we do to keep on doing what we do so yeah i think more than ever we feel the need to tell the truth and to fight for that in a way that we never, I think, realised we would have to fight for before. And fight, they do. It was great speaking to Andrew. I, like many journalists I know, have found the last few years of the industry incredibly tough, with shrinking newsrooms, inevitable rounds of layoffs, low pay and instability becoming the name of the game for many organisations. I kind of even hesitate to call myself a journalist as what I've done in the industry, which I'm very proud of, but it's a completely different thing to the kind of real-world news reporting that Andrew does. But he did remind me of that spark, that belief in bearing witness to history and the importance and necessity of fact and truth in this ever-confusing digital age. So to close out, I asked Andrew to share some of his favourite journalism. Uh, who do you read? Who do you read the most? Who's your favourite reporter to check in with? 
about South Africa? Uh, yeah, yes, or in general. Is there anyone who's writing that you just particularly enjoy? Hmm. Gosh, I tend to say um, there are websites. You know, I think the Daily Maverick does a fantastic job here in South Africa um, of really hard-hitting news um, and sort of wry, trenchant satire. Um, Marion Tam, Richard Potblack, many others who, who really, I mean, one of South Africa's great glories is its media. You know, they've exposed the, the corruption of the Zuma era. Um, they've really fought for the democracy in this country. And South Africa understands itself very well. Um, sometimes I think South Africa, like like a lot of countries, can be very introspective and parochial and I guess that's easy for me to say having had this globe-trotting life I think most countries are like that but I think South Africa struggles to to see itself to place itself in the rest of Africa um, I'm sorry I'm going off at a tangent here but I, I think what I want to say is there are a lot of great journalists here um, and I think that that stood South Africa in, in very good stead. Um, but I don't necessarily... And I think there's some great foreign correspondents here over the years. I mean, South Africa has always been an amazing place from the apartheid era onwards in which to be based. Uh, these days, I think more people end up in Nairobi or in Dakar and Senegal or, or elsewhere. And I think that's all good as well because I think you get very different perspectives on the continent depending where you live yeah no I, I was yeah I agree I was always very aware of that sort of um navel gazy um <laughs> reputation that South Africans had um okay so what do you find let's say maybe from a British point of view what do you think Brits maybe um what do you think that they, they don't understand about South Africa or, or um something that maybe uh, I don't want to say consistency, sorry, let me say the question a bit better. Um, so from a British perspective, like when you when you come back here or you speak to British people, what do you find that they, they misunderstand South Africa about South Africa? That's a tough one. I, I mean, I, I just wish, I wish there was more interest in Africa as a whole, um, in the British media, uh, in, in global media. I mean, one sees, and you see it on the Guardian website where because they've got an Australia edition when you wake up there are all these Australian stories and you think yeah. I'm, I'm constantly and I know I'm a bit biased here but I'm going this is a, a big island with very few people on the other side of the earth why did they why did their stories count so much more than this continent why isn't there a guardian Africa um, mm. so I, I have frustrations about that um, and it is hard still, I think, for Africa to break into people's consciousness um, because there's so much going on, so much else going on around the world at the moment with Brexit, with Trump, now with COVID. Um, and it's it means that it's only the loudest stories that break through. And as I said before, you know, the loudest stories rightly are often conflict stories. And I, I don't apologize for that because having been in wars I know how important they are but mm. when you're only getting on the news once a week or once a month and you're fighting for your place in people's attention 
it is only going to, you're going to get a warped perception. And so I, I, I guess I, I wish we had the opportunity to tell more stories about the complexity and, the, and, and yes, the good news and the successes on this continent, which actually I think on websites, you know, in this modern era, we do a pretty damn good job of doing. Um, but if you're going for linear news on your radio or your TV in the old fashioned way, you're still likely to get a, a, a very different view of, of Africa. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, great. I think that actually, instead of asking you for a book, because I, I, I really do, um, I really did enjoy the book, and I will be telling everyone I know to read it, because I, I do think, you know, um, there's a certain level of storytelling that, like you said, you, if we get bombarded, it's not bombarded, but, you know, if sort of British and, and US um, news and storytelling sort of comes into your attention field more often than maybe South African stories do. Um, it was, it really, it really was, I know, like I said at the beginning, it's a bit enjoyable, weird to say enjoyable about um, uh, what is a really difficult story, but it was really enjoyable to read and I really felt like I understood something and I hadn't, I hadn't read a modern narrative story about South Africa and I, I just, yeah, I would, I really enjoyed it, so thank you very much for writing. Thank you so much, Lisa. Um, and um, just so you know, um, and your listeners know, we've got a BBC series, radio series, that's going to be on Radio 4 the week of the 14th of September. Um, it's, called, it's called Bloodlands, Bloodlands, okay. and it's going to be running on Radio 4. It's also going to be on a podcast uh, on, oh, BBC great. Sound. on BBC And then nice. the British edition of the book of the book, not podcast, comes out uh, on the 1st of October or thereabouts. Fantastic. Okay, great. And then I will, um, I think I, I'll, I'd like to put this out um, maybe in between those two things. So I'll add um, the link to the podcast in the show notes if anyone wants to listen. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, it's a five-parter about the case with lots of audio, lots of drama. Um yeah, it's I hopefully I, I think it's a great listen, but um I'm biased. Oh great, I look forward to it. <laughs> no, I really look forward to it. I think um especially again, like I said, it's such a strongly strong uh, character driven story. It'll be it'd be great to hear an audio some some audio storytelling around that as well. Okay, great. Well thank you so much. Um and yeah, thank you for coming on Storyteller. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you again to Andrew for this chat. I can't recommend this book enough. It had me totally hooked. There were so many colourful, wild and weird people involved in this story. You know, it, it involves race, land and politics, but it's not reduced to that. There are family feuds, there's histories, there's these complexities that just make the book very hard to put down. It'll intrigue you and it'll break your heart. I will add links to the show notes to where you can get the book. It is coming out on the 1st of October. So definitely go and pre-order it if you're interested. I heard that pre-ordering is very important in these times um, in the literary world. So jump over there and order the book. You won't be disappointed. Also, as Andrew mentioned, there's a fantastic series on the BBC um, about this case which is called Bloodlands which I'll also link it's so interesting especially having read the book to hear the voices of a lot of the characters that you've read about 
as always please 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 share the podcast with anyone you think will enjoy it um podcasting relies on word of mouth and um i mean outside of the good old rates and reviews um but you know i think i found some of my favorite podcasts when they've been suggested to me by people with similar interests or who know what i like so if you do want to do me a favor this week maybe just pick one person who you think will enjoy it and just send it over to them um that that would always help uh, as, uh, you can email me your thoughts and any feedback at storytellerpod at gmail.com. Storytellers on Twitter at storytellerpod1, the number one, and on Instagram at storyteller underscore pod. Until next time.